We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. This is Dave Debo. We are talking today about the blizzard, the deadly blizzard, Winter Storm Elliot, they're calling it. Of the 39 people who died, 17 of them were found outside. 11 were in unheated homes, four were in stranded vehicles. Others died simply because they had a medical emergency and, and people couldn't get to them. 31 of the deaths were in the city of Buffalo. And here's the statistic that we're going to be talking most about for the next segment here. 20 of the victims were black, 18 were white, one was Hispanic. And this in a county, and these are countywide numbers, this in a county where the population of, of black people is 13%, so almost half, almost 50% in a region that is only 13% black. We're gonna talk a little bit about that inequity. Jillian Hainsworth is with us now. She is the City of Buffalo's Poet Laureate. And in the days right after the blizzard, she was all over social media talking about these disparities. We thought it would be a good idea to bring her in and have her talk about them with us now. Jillian, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, as, as usual. I always appreciate it. What happened? Why, did this dis why does this disparity exist? These disparities exist when we see any type of weather occurrence, natural occurrences. When you look at poverty, the people who are in the most impoverished communities are always the ones that are impacted the most. And we know that in the city of Buffalo, the people on the east side of Buffalo and some people on the west side of Buffalo are the people with the lowest income levels, the highest poverty rates, the, the worst quality water, the least access to food. Like these are people who are already stuck in survival mode on a daily basis. The storm just exacerbated the issues. They just made the issues cold. But these issues exist already. So of course we were going to see them during this blizzard. And I noted uh, during, during the blizzard, there were a lot of people, Governor Kathy Hochul, County Executive Mark Polenkars, Mayor Byron Brown, who during one of their briefings on Monday after the storm hit, uh, said, no, we've done everything we can. We urged people to prepare. Mm -hmm. Your argument is it's tough to prepare hard to have two weeks of food on yourselves when you're living paycheck to paycheck. Correct. Now, I, I personally um, have kind of just gotten out of that paycheck to paycheck lifestyle, but that's how I grew up. But even I don't have two weeks worth of food in my house right now. Food is expensive. And then the storm happened at the end of the month, so people who get assistance to help pay for their food that assistance has already run out. They're waiting for the next check. They're waiting for the next their next food stamps. Um, and then it's a holiday, so people already spent their money just trying to keep a sense of normalcy in their homes. And for, for the mayor to come on the news and say, well, I told you, you should have had two weeks worth of groceries, it's almost like, do you even know us? Like, do you even understand the people in the area you're governing? Because in my mind, 
the more uh, preventative preparation would have been helping people prepare based on their income level. Like if you are at a lower income level, keeping two weeks worth of batteries is not even an option. Like batteries, that's so expensive. Like I don't have any batteries at my house right now. Um, so it, it was very tone deaf and it just, it made me feel like they are very out of touch with the day-to-day -day struggles that a lot of their constituents are dealing with. Some of the things you're talking about, though, are systemic. Yes. And systemic problems would require, to my mind, a lot more lead time, a lot more things in place that you couldn't just necessarily put together when a storm is coming. Correct, correct. A lot of our issues here, when, especially when it comes to race and poverty, are systemic. These are issues, I'm 30, I just turned 30 in November. These are issues that we've seen exist for over 30 years in this community. Um, so there has to be an infrastructure built that helps to insulate the people from things happening because we know what they are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And there is no, there was no plan. There was no infrastructure. There are no policies that says, hey, grocery stores, if we are preparing for a huge natural disaster, you can give food away, the food in the grocery store away, because the store is gonna be closed anyway. Or restaurants, uh, in New York State, most shelters, homeless shelters, can't accept food from restaurants. So why? You know, we have restaurants that are willing to open their door to help feed people. We need to be able to have some kind of contingencies in our laws to make it easier for our people to help each other, but also for accountability. So when we don't get helped, we're not just here picking up broken pieces. Like, somebody has to, has to take has to carry the fact that so many of these lives were lost because nothing was done to prevent them from being lost. Put it in a broader context for me. Obviously, a lot of what we talk about in this program is the shootings of 514. Mm -hmm. I heard you say right after the shootings a lot of the same things you are saying now. Yeah, the people are still starving. They were starving before then. And it, it goes back to feel the feeling of our, our leaders not understanding us and not knowing us because a lot of these issues we've been screaming, hey, like look at us, look over here, we're hungry, we don't have resources, we can't get our kids to school and our kids that are going to school can't read and the ones that can read can't retain information, like hey, we can't get jobs, our housing is poor, which leads to every other, every other issue that we see happen in our communities. Like we've been screaming, look over here, we're right here and no, nothing has been done. Nothing on a policy level has been done. Leadership has not changed. So it's like, it's this feeling of like, we're stuck. And at, at some point, you know, community members started going out and risking their lives to help each other, to save each other. Um, while we're being told help is not coming. Like, there's no way for, for a fire truck to get to you if your house is burning down. Um, it, it's such a disservice. Like these people here, we deserve so much better. Share a couple of stories of the kind of community response you saw. Yeah, so I have a friend named Miles Carter, him and David Lewis and Carrie O'Horn. They were out getting in their cars and taking food to people, helping rescue people out of homes that were being flooded, that didn't have gas or heat. Um, I know so many people in my own community that were posting their addresses saying like, hey, if you are stuck outside or if you don't have heat, I have heat, here's my address. I even saw on, there's a, a Blizzard Facebook page that had like 
tens of thousands of members, and one of the members owns an office building in Lackawanna, and he posted the code to get into the building. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, it's gonna be locked because the, the building is closed. Here's the code, you can get in. It should be warm in there. Like, if you're stuck, go in there. And the fact that we were offering each other shelter when the city had four warming centers and two of them lost electricity, it's like, what are we doing here? Like, the people were heroes, but at the same time, the people were failed. And we have to be honest about that. I want to play devil's advocate. Two, two questions that I think get to that. Yes, more than uh, about half of the people who died in Erie County were black. Um, but if we look at the population of the city of Buffalo, and if we look at the fact that the blizzard hit Buffalo pretty hard compared to other areas, can those numbers be discounted? Do we say, well, that's just a thing of population? No, because like you said earlier, like we also have to look at this at, in a broader spectrum, right? And we have to look at historically what's been happening in our communities. We have to look at the fact that the storm's over, the snow melted, but there's still no plan. And so the next time a blizzard comes, the same poor people whose lives were in danger for, you know, four or five days might have those same issues. You know what I mean? Like there, there aren't regulations for, for landlords who don't properly insulate the, ho the homes that they're renting out. So their tenants are freezing and they're, they're okay in their own home that is insulated. Like looking at it from a, a macro level, black people in Buffalo, black and brown people, but especially black people are historically excluded we're excluded from, from being kept safe, we're excluded from progress, we're excluded from building wealth, and that is an issue. And the blizzard was just one manifestation of the larger issues. So, so remembering that we live here before that blizzard and we're gonna continue to live here after that blizzard, you can't discount those lives. Devil's Advocate question number two. The death of 10 people didn't change things. Did you really think a blizzard would? I, I don't necessarily think that the blizzard would change things. I really hoped and prayed that the death of 10 community members at the hands of a, a terrorist would. What I do see cha the change happening is I see more community being built. I see people kind of coming to this understanding that even if we can't lean on the people that are in office, we, we know we have each other. Like we know that people will take food out of their refrigerator to put it in my refrigerator if I don't have anything. Like, so I, I think building community is really important because once we can build community, we can build an understanding of each other, we can build empathy without condition, then we can start to work together to have a unified message and demand change. But if people in South Buffalo don't understand the plight of people on the east side, how are we all gonna vote for the same people? Like, how are we gonna know what we need as leaders if we're not understanding what's happening in other communities outside of ours in one of the most segregated cities in the country? You just did something interesting. I I've heard the discussion, obviously, people from South Buffalo don't know people from the east side. You put it in a political context. How do we know who we're supposed to be voting for if we don't know each other? That, that's an interesting twist on the equation. Yeah, and I remember after May 14th when I would speak at different events, I'd say, raise your hand if you had to use your GPS to get here. And of course, 
people will be predominantly white people will raise their hand and it's like, you don't see the color and the beauty of us. You don't see what's actually happening in these communities. So how can you, how can you know what leader is good for a community that you've never visited, you know? So, so we, now that we're building community, we're gonna be able to build a better understanding of what people outside of our direct neighborhoods need. And hopefully we'll use that to inform ourselves when we go to the polls. Is it a bad thing that government isn't doing it and therefore people have? Uh, talk a little bit about the role of each of those groups. Community stepping forward, a good thing. To what degree do you feel government should also be doing so? Or are they allowed maybe not to because the community is advanced? The community being willing to help each other out will always be a good thing in my eyes. The community having to risk their lives to help each other because government won't do it is never okay. Somebody's not doing their job and the person that's not doing their job is still cashing a check and we're still broke. You know what I mean? Like we have to put it in that context. We have to remember that when we pay taxes, we're trading away certain liberties for protection, for safety, and we are not being protected. So yeah, we have each other's backs and that's great, but we should not be in positions where we have to risk our lives to help each other while those who are leading us stand on, in a camera and say, well, we told you, I don't know, should have had two weeks worth of batteries. That'll never be okay, never. So uh, to you, it's, it's the way they presented it, it's the tone rather than the lack of policy? It's both. It's the lack of policy, that's the biggest issue, the lack of policy, the lack of preparation, but knowing that they did not prepare and then standing on a camera and taking that tone was like a slap in the face. And that is also a big problem for me because I saw people, like I said before, risking their lives. The city of Buffalo is going to undertake a review. They've hired an outside university, New York University, to look at things. Are you optimistic? Is that the kind of thing that will help or is that just something that will say, oh gee, we have problems? Um, number one, we already have had a bunch of studies done to show the issues that we have here. Henry Taylor, Dr. Henry Taylor already- The harder we run. Exactly. So number one, where are y'all getting this money from? Like, who are, why are you hiring people to tell you what we already know? We've been, again, we've been saying, hey, look at us, look over here, pay attention. Why are you hiring people? How much are you paying them? Where are you getting this money? And where else could we be using it? Because when we look at how we budget, budget is the best indication of priorities. So the same people that didn't, that need workforce development resources, the same people that just need somebody to show up on their front porch with a shovel, like those people are still gonna be in need while you're hiring someone to tell us what we already know. I don't, I don't understand it. And I'm hoping that we learn something new but as somebody who has lived here and who has worked in this city for my entire life and who has read multiple studies by different urban planners and, and political leaders, I, I don't necessarily think that that's a step we had to take. I think it's one of those like, look, we're doing something. We're gonna figure this thing out. But again, the people are still starving. You framed it almost as two different things, ongoing symptoms and broader disease. Is it a good idea to treat the symptoms, more pantries, more community fridges, and we can get to that in a moment, um, more services, or how do we, should we address the bigger issue? 
if people are dying in a blizzard, I could almost see the argument, almost see the argument that the symptoms, at least in the here and now, are more important and should be addressed rather than the broader systemic racism disease. So I think historically in Buffalo, we see the people take care of the symptoms, right? After the, the shooting in Tops, people pulled together, organizations pulled together and made sure people were able to get groceries, people were able to get medications and diapers and formula. I think ideally our government would help equip our community leaders with the tools to address the symptoms while they do the work to address the disease. Because it has to be a yes and, because if we only address one, there's still gonna be all of these lingering issues that are brought on by the other. And that's the thing, I think a lot of times our leaders don't realize that the community, we're willing to be your partner. We're willing to collaborate because we live here. Like We have to live here. We can't just pack up and leave Buffalo because we don't like the way the mayor spoke at a press conference. Like We're here, so work with us, partner with us. Tell us the resources you have and we'll tell you what we have and we'll figure out how to how to treat the symptoms in our direct neighborhoods while you do the work to target the disease because that is what you are supposed to be doing. Common Council, you're our legislative body. That's what you're supposed to be doing. We don't need you to do a food drive because we know how to do food drives. We can do a food drive. We need you to get into that office, close the door, sit down, be honest with each other about what's happening and write legislation. Like, I think we're, we're mixing what, who's supposed to be doing what sometimes. I, I see community members all the time saying, we need this legislation. Look at this law that passed in this state or this policy that's being enacted in this state. Do that here, do that here. And at the same time, we're doing food drives and we're doing barbecues and pop-up you know, shops to make sure our community has what they need. Imagine how much smoother this could go if we were able to help address the symptoms and we could trust that the disease was being addressed by those who are literally getting paid to do it. Buffalo Poet Laureate Jillian Hainsworth is with us. We're talking about the aftermath of the blizzard, winter storm Elliot, 39 deaths in Erie County, 18 of them people of color. I get what you're saying about their job, your job, but what would you recommend that they do? Community can take care of symptoms. How do we address, how should they address the disease? Well, like I said, we need, um, we need more land trusts. I'm gonna talk about Buffalo specifically. Um, we need more land trusts. Um, if people, especially on the east side, can start to build wealth, like that will really, really help. There are so many people on the east side who can't even afford to buy the house they've been renting for 20 plus years. Like we need ways to make sure that people can own their homes, people can start new businesses. We need ownership. We need to expand the African Heritage Co-op because we need our own grocery stores. Like we need them to take those same, um, you know how when developers come into Buffalo, sometimes it seems like they have such an easy time building a new apartment complex. Those same like, I don't know even how to, what to call it, but shortcuts, I guess, the same shortcuts that these major developers are getting that the people don't even know about, like care about us too, care about us first. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're saying there should be as much incentives yeah. at the city level 
for development on the east side as there is in downtown. Yes, in development by black and brown developers, by black and brown construction companies, like employ our people. I know people personally who have tried to to start their own companies where they want to develop grocery stores and shopping plazas and they cannot get past the red tape. Why? You know? Uh, that that developer issue might be a little harder though because developers are who they are because they have the money. And a lot of this discussion so far has been that the black community doesn't have that generational wealth, that, that there haven't been ways for them to build it because of the segregation, because of the disinvestment. Um, how do you develop a black developer? Um, number one, the city has to give some money. The city needs to provide land trusts. They need to say, we have 300 empty lots on the east side that we don't even take care of. We don't even mow the lawn on these lots. So, okay, we are gonna sell them to you for $1 because the city can sell property, homes that they own for $1. We need to start making it easier because believe it or not, a lot of these people between, especially in the black community, will pull their resources together, pull their, their money together to create our own. But again, if they're not given the chance, we can never create. Additionally, there are so many people who own property in Buffalo who are sitting on it, hoping that a developer will come to them and buy it from them. Next to, around Tops on Jefferson, there are empty lots. And I have a friend who contacted the man who owns one of those lots. He does not live in Buffalo. And he's like, how much are you, will you be willing to sell this lot for? Like, this is right after 514. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, like, we need to... We need to develop, and I have money. Here's how much capital I have. I can build what my community needs if you're willing to sell this lot. And he was like, listen, I'm trying to sell this lot to somebody building, like, luxury condos. Someone who will pay me lots of money. Right. And that should not be okay. Like, at that point, we should have people in the city, urban planners, advocates, who can step in. We know we can't make anybody sell their property, but... The fact that you and I are sitting here having this conversation about how do we do this when there are people who got paid and are elected to figure this out, that's a problem. Like, that's a problem. Like, I can't give you a full layout of everything that will solve the issues, right? It's just, it's not what I do. I'm, yeah. I don't have the knowledge. But there are people who have been in government here in Buffalo for years, for years. And we're not asking them the same questions. Bottom line, I think we can summarize your remarks by saying poverty and lack of investment is what killed people during the blizzard? Absolutely. Poverty and lack of investment killed our community members during that blizzard. And if nothing is done, we are going to continue as we see weather patterns get more and more intense. We are going to continue to have to bury our neighbors while our leaders just shrug their shoulders or send their thoughts, hugs and prayers, and nothing gets done. And I, I will say that I did see a couple common council members, Darius Pridgen, he went live for hours one of the nights trying to connect people with needs to people who can provide those needs or supply those needs. But at the same time, <laughs> yeah. write some legislation, sir, because these issues, again, these are symptoms. And... You can get rid of the symptoms all day, but if you don't address the disease, the symptoms will come back. Disease can be addressed by policy. The symptoms can be addressed by service. Let me pick up that broader discussion, though. Um, you talked earlier about the guy from South Buffalo 
who probably does not have any understanding of the East Side, let alone the guy from East Aurora, Elma, Arcade, Darien. Even with lawmakers who have the right policy approach, you've got to have some sort of attitudinal shift there. And I'm not sure that that's something that people can even conceive of. Yeah, you're right. I do think that that is a big issue here. And I think the remedy to that is, is we vote them out. And again, that goes back to making sure the community understands each other. Because if somebody in South Buffalo understands, hey, every time we have a bad blizzard, people on the east side are going to die, that might make them reconsider, even my council member, like, what are you doing to help? Because these are still my people. This is still my city. So as long as we continue to build this community, I'm confident that we can rally together. But... Um, when it comes to, to policymakers not being able to change their mindset, you just got to go. You have to go. We're not here to, to help you understand us. Like, you got voted into office under the, the premise that you will be willing and that you already understand us to a degree. All right, but what about the lack of understanding? And I, I don't mean to pick on Orchard Park. I'll just use them as the generic example. Mm-hmm. Insert East Aurora. Again, insert Arcade. Generic white suburb. What about the lack of understanding there? Yeah, I think a big part of that is people have to be willing to step outside of what they're comfortable with. Um, After the storm, myself with the Thurman Thomas Foundation, Every Bottom Covered, and Give Buffalo, um, they planned this amazing event where they they had Bill's Mafia, they called them Snowplow Mafia, and they came to the east side, to Delavan and Grider, and they shoveled. They just walked around. We gave people different streets, and they would go from street to street, shoveling complete strangers' homes, helping dig their cars out. I walked down one street, and I was, I was carrying a case of water. And I'm like, hey, you guys need any water? And they were like, oh, no, he already gave us some coffee. And there was just, like, this, like, older black guy standing in the doorway, and they're all just, like, standing around drinking coffee out of, like, red solo cups. <laughs> and it's, like, the sense of community that you feel in, in Kimmore or in Orchard Park, like, that's here. Like, we have that here. We're a community here. You just have to be willing to come here. And, like, we have to know that we're safe to come there. Like, we can't continue this, like, segregation. Like, you're black you come on the east side. And if you're a refugee, you go to the west side. And if you're white and Italian, get over to, to North Buffalo, hurdle. Like, you know, like that's so dumb. Like, it's so stereotypical and we are all everywhere. So I think it ha- it's, a, it's a twofold. Like, we have to be willing to welcome people into our communities and they have to be willing to come. You mentioned Bill's Mafia and I don't want to be frivolous here, but I think the one time perhaps when people aren't segregated is inside the stadium. Absolutely. I'll say that all the time. The, the football team is like the one thing we can all get behind. There is no political arguments associated, no socioeconomic arguments. It's just something that we can all support. And I think the people who are like, let's lean into that to help build community, they're brilliant. Because when we said put on your Bills gear and grab your shovel and come help, they put on their Bills gear, they grabbed their shovels, and they got there. You know what I mean? Thurman Thomas was there for a while. Like, our, our community is vast, and, and we can do a lot. We just have to be willing to travel outside of our neighborhoods. Jillian, thanks so much for your time. Any closing comments? I just wanted to send some love to um, the family that recently lost five babies in that fire. 
Pastor Price is, is helping to raise money. There's a GoFundMe, uh, Pastor Price, Dwayne Price, anywhere on social media, you should be able to find this GoFundMe. Like, please help support this family. I cannot imagine what they've just been through, and I can't imagine even trying to start to pick up the pieces. So if there's anything we can do as a community to support them, I think we should do that. Jillian Hensworth, thanks for your time. Always. Thank you for having me. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Stay with us. Buffalo Toronto Public Media's unique and valued programming on WNED-PBS, WNED Classical, and WBFO make us a perfect partner for any company interested in making a real difference in our community. Your support has the power to associate your business with one of the most trusted brands in North America. Call me, Sylvia Bennett, to find out how you can make a difference. 716-845-7005. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED-PBS, WNED-Create, and WNED-PBS Kids. Click the Primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next, our daily discussion on race, education, and equity following the May 14th top shooting. With me today to discuss the city of Buffalo's response to the winter storm is Fair Fines and Fees Coalition members Jolanda Hill and Karina Teft. Jolanda and Karina, thank you for thank you both for being here today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us, Thomas. So the two of you co-authored a letter detailing the policy failures of the city of Buffalo before, during, and after this historic and deadly blizzard. Right off the top, how would you describe the city's preparedness prior to the storm hitting? Yeah, so, um, you know, we are approaching this criticism of the city through the lens of the city really needs to take a proactive approach to how the city approaches safety um, and then also just reimagining safety entirely because I'm sure as many Buffalonians know the city spends an exorbitant amount of money on policing um, and has been for decades and you know that style of keeping folks in Buffalo safe does not work it subjects people to um, unnecessary interactions with the police. You know, as Jolanda was saying, I think in terms of the city's kind of general preparedness, I mean, they just, they weren't prepared really in any way. And that, that showed up in a variety of ways. I mean, there was, you know, number one, there was clearly a lack of any uh, 
blizzard response plan that was comprehensive or even like a general snowstorm response plan, which is very shocking for a city like Buffalo that gets hammered with snow all the time. This is not like a, a surprise thing to happen. There were not enough resources invested in the Department of Public Works or anything related to urban planning to help manage the infrastructure required to deal with this level of snow removal. There were not enough plows. There were not enough trucks. They didn't respond quickly enough. And then there were no emergency services available to people who were stranded in their homes. Many folks were stranded in their offices because the driving ban was issued too late and then you know people wound up being stranded on the road as well and um you know the lack of resources and the lack of preparedness on the city's part put people in dire circumstances and as we all know very tragically has led to the deaths of now 44 people i believe is is the current count and that number has just been has just been going up. And of course, you know, with the with the driving ban, which number one was issued too late in the game, as I mentioned, and you know, left people mm-hmm. um, outside and in dire circumstances, it was then used against people later on by instituting, you know, aggressive, punitive uh, traffic enforcement and roadblocks to stop people who were driving. And m- many of those people if not most of those people were driving to get access to resources or to come to the aid of other people in the community when the city wasn't there to help them themselves. People who didn't have electricity um, or access to any other utilities who were extremely limited on food, uh, had no access to healthcare um, or other emergency services. And, you know, as Jolanda said, this is really part of a longstanding pattern on the part of the city of over-investing in policing and using a punitive response to try to control what people do in Buffalo. And it, you know, not only is that ineffective, it's extremely dangerous. It put people at risk. People died, dozens of people die, died. And people also um, are, you know, put at risk regularly by the city's approach to public safety uh, through their aggressive traffic enforcement tactics that they've been using for many, many years. And it's something that desperately needs to change. This isn't a one-time incident in which things were uniquely mishandled with the blizzard. This is part and parcel of many years of the same practices uh, by the city, particularly by the police. You see a pattern. You see a pattern here. Yeah. And I'll just add to that. Thank you, Karina. Essentially, because the city failed to proactively have other policies in place prior to the storm, the city then relied on the police to essentially keep people safe. Um, and that is bad policy. It is not, it is not a good way to um, keep people safe, especially during a blizzard. And so essentially what the Fair Fines and Fees Coalition has been saying for several years is that the city of Buffalo must invest in other strategies and policies to keep um, Buffalonians safe. As a, as a city, are we too reliant on each other? I mean, it's a good thing to, ha- to have that, but are we too reliant in a case like the blizzard? Are we too reliant on each other to and 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 sometimes and give 
local municipalities the a pass on their response? I do think that it's good to have um, a city where, you know, residents come together to support each other. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I do think there's something wrong, though, when residents are coming to each other's aid, you know, or supporting one another because they don't have any other options. I think mm -hmm. that that is like the unjust and clearly just outright unacceptable aspects of, of this, the entire like blizzard crisis that really stuck out to me and really screams, you know, there needs to be some serious, serious systemic changes that, you know, need to take place within, <laughs> at, at City Hall um, in various departments. One of those departments being, you know, the Department of Public Works. Like I was looking online, and the Department of Public Works has about nine different areas that they focus on, including streets, including bridges, like all of these various areas. And, you know, that really, that, that's clearly an, an, an area that the city of Buffalo can, can focus on and, and step back and think about, you know, how can we separate some of these departments so that way they function a lot better and so that way they can actually you know meet the needs of the community in times of crisis um you know the the department of public works didn't have enough emergency um equipment to respond and there was just failure after failure after failure just just showing that there hasn't been enough investment within these really vital departments within the city of Buffalo to keep Buffalonians safe. And there's been so much more focus on investing, you know, millions of dollars in um, the Buffalo Police Department. And as we know, the Buffalo Police Department absolutely does not keep black and brown people safe. It actually, you know, puts them at risk of, you know, really violent and deadly, um, potentially deadly encounters. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. Thomas O'Neill White here discussing the city of Buffalo's response to the latest winter storm with Fair Fines and Fees Coalition members Jolanda Hill and Karina Taft. Well, and let me ask you this real quick. And then <laughs> Karina, please answer this as well. Is this a, a policy failure or is it policy as usual? I think this is policy as usual that is failing the people of Buffalo and it's especially failing communities of color in Buffalo. You know, as Jolanda was saying, to the extent that communities are forced to rely on each other to come to each other's aid, to advocate for each other, you know, th those these are some of the tenets of mutual aid and mutual support and times of crisis in particular, you know, that's as exactly as Jolanda said, very much out of necessity. And there's at the same time, there's no shortage of people pushing back on the city for years of specific policies that have been used to target and surveil communities of color in Buffalo, especially people on the east side. And you know, a lot of these examples come from very recent history. The school zone speed camera program that was instituted at the top of the pandemic at 
an incredibly vulnerable time for so many people and an especially economically vulnerable time that was used to rack up huge amounts of money in, in fines off of some of the most um, vulnerable and low-income communities in Buffalo. And then later that uh, the school zone speed program was dismantled because of public outcry by the Fair Fines and Fees Coalition, by a lot of individual advocates and other experts and attorneys who recognized that the program was also being operated in violation of state law, possibly in violation of federal law as well. Uh, before that, in 2018, there were mandatory fees that the city created. There are 13 or 15 fees that the city would tack on to all traffic tickets in order to increase revenues for themselves. And they were expensive um, fees, difficult burden to bear for folks who are getting repeatedly traffic, uh, repeatedly ticketed, excuse me, especially in neighborhoods that are routinely over-policed like the East Side. Uh, and that was also later repealed because communities, uh, you know, spoke up about it and advocated and pushed back against it because it was unfair and punitive and excessive. And then, you know, the starting around 2012, the city and the Buffalo Police instituted the vehicle checkpoint program in which roadblocks were fixed roadblocks were set up mm -hmm. at different points throughout the city and a disproportionate number of those were on the east side of Buffalo and when folks went through the police would get, uh, get into a ticketing blitz people were issued multiple tickets in one stop sometimes for the same things such as tinted windows um, and for black drivers in Buffalo in particular they're substantially more likely to receive multiple tickets in a single stop. And, you know, that too, that particular practice, the um, the checkpoints, as well as a lot of these traffic enforcement tactics are the subject of a lawsuit that's been going on now for four and a half years, that the city has had ample opportunity to settle in favor of the people of Buffalo in an equitable way that's fo focused on racial justice and economic justice. And they're continuing to drag the process along because they are refusing to be accountable uh, to the people and refusing to recognize that what they have deliberately been doing for many, many years is causing substantial harm. It's ex extracting wealth from some of the poorest communities in the city of Buffalo. It's targeting people based on their race, profiling them for their race and putting people in a very vulnerable position you know, traffic stops are not only extractive in terms of ticketing, they're also physically dangerous. People die in traffic stops at the hands of police. This is a national problem. We know many instances in which this has happened. Philando Castile, Sandra Bland locally. We have Jose Hernandez Rossi, who was killed um, mm -hmm. following a traffic stop by police. You know, the it's an incredibly vulnerable space to be in. And when traffic stops in particular are, you know, one of the city's, they're the police's favorite mechanisms to use to try to enforce roadway safety and also to investigate crime, but which it's not effective at doing either through policing, number one, you know, it's going to be the most, it is the most common reason that people come into contact with police in the first place. Um, and as a result, it, it puts people at risk. It's very, very scary. People are literally dying. People are being harmed every day. People are losing their cars, you know, losing, right. losing their wealth. 
it's it's incredibly detrimental. Uh, in, the, yeah. in the letter, oh, go ahead, Jolanda. And I just wanted to, thank you, Karina. <laughs> um, I just wanted to like circle back, like how that all connects back to the blizzard is that, right? Like yeah, there's, the there's parallels. Yeah, like the city of Buffalo has, you know, invested all of this, um, you know, all of these resources in these types of um, policies under the guise of safety, when in reality, um, it's criminalizing people, it's extracting from the forest communities, like Karina said. And as a result, that's actually undermining other more incentive, you know, restorative, preventative-based uh, safety solutions, like investing in housing, like investing in street infrastructure, like getting more, um, you know, emergency equipment, having a snowstorm and blizzard plan, which the city um, didn't have. So yeah, the city definitely should be questioning like what are they investing their time and resources into? Um, because clearly the Buffalo Police Department was not able to keep folks safe during the blizzard. But they were certainly able to uh, arrest people. Um, oh, yes, speaking, of, speaking, speaking of which, uh, in the letter there is mention of retired Buffalo Police Officer Carrie O'Horn being assaulted and arrested by BPD officers while trying to help residents. Jolanda, can you tell us a little bit more about the situation? We obviously want to have Carrie on to share her story at a later date, but can you just give us a little, a little bit about that story? Yeah, so I am definitely going to allow for um, Carrie to um, tell her story. You know, um, I definitely don't want to... Um, you know, miss miss any important details, but I think Carol's story, along with Quentin Suttle's story, along with Jose's story, are all just examples of how the Buffalo Police Department consistently abuses their power and their authority under this guise of supposedly keeping folks safe. Um, and so, yeah, Cariel during the blizzard had a really just this unnecessary interaction with a Buffalo police officer in the city of Buffalo at a time when, you know, you would assume that something like that wouldn't happen and the police would actually be more, you know, actually keeping folks safe, keeping someone mm -hmm. like Cariel safe. Um, and I'll leave, you know, that story for her to tell the details, but something like that shouldn't have happened. I think um, there were checkpoints happening in the in the same locations that checkpoints were that checkpoints were happening during 2012. Um, Predominantly like African-American areas. Yeah, over in the Bailey and Kensington, Bailey and Kensington area. And um just based on, you know, some of the research that I was doing, because obviously I couldn't see the entire city. I am for certain that wasn't happening in the more, um, you know, prestigious or white populated areas. So, yeah, I think this blizzard and, you know, the 44 lives that were lost in my heart and my prayers go out to, you know, the families that are still in mourning and grieving their loved ones. 
this blizzard should really be a wake up call to this administration and the mayor of Buffalo and Common Council um, and the Department of Public Works, all of the departments to really step back and just re-strategize and reimagine and really think about what does safety mean and look like for the city of Buffalo? Because policing cannot be the only answer. And based on the budget, you would assume that, that that's what the city must believe. Yeah, and just to add to that, the you know the fact that the mayor instituted a looting task force in the midst of all of the crisis that was unfolding, you know, also calling people who were engaged in looting the worst of the worst, it just like really reflects a confused priorities, I'd say, on behalf of the Brown administration uh, about, you know, what really needs to be addressed, exactly what Jolanda is saying about what does safety really mean and, you know, targeting people for criminal activity during um, an extremely dangerous time is is not helpful to the public. And, and who is that serving, especially if you consider that a lot of folks who are positioned to be looting um, were very likely in desperate circumstances themselves and may have been without supplies, without aid, without food. There are any number of reasons that folks could have been in that position. Um, and also, Thomas, you may have seen the Democracy Now! interview of um, Carrie Horn and India Walton. Um, if you haven't, she she goes into more detail in that interview about what she experienced at that traffic stop that would also be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's a good point that Karina brought up about the looting task force. There were in a there was an immense amount of resources that was that was put into that <laughs> task force. And the amount of news coverage that that task force was given during a time where people were literally trying to find their loved ones. Like people were probably at that time still trapped in their cars, right? And the mayor was trying to address, and I totally get it, right? Like these are businesses, et cetera, but we're talking about systemic issues that should have been addressed long before this blizzard. And the mayor spent all of these resources and you know, getting the police out on the street to start to target some of the most vulnerable communities, even before the blizzard, during the time when like the police shouldn't shouldn't have been having these types of interactions with people. Yeah, it's it's disgraceful. It's not like it's not a good look for the city of Buffalo. And then to call folks the lowest of the low as the world is watching was just unacceptable. Yes. Um, how, how do you feel about the city doing a blizzard impact study through NYU and then uh, South District Councilman Chris Scanlon's uh, blizzard resolutions? Is it enough? Where do you think the city should go from here? The the city's response to the blizzard and the aftermath of, of the blizzard and, and its impact on um, city of Buffalo residents should be studied. But the question becomes like, um, why wasn't something like this prepared or why why didn't something like this exist before, right? Like, because I'm sure just based on the amount of information that I would assume the city would have about like, you know, weather, the weather conditions, how the weather, the weather is changing everywhere across the United States that like maybe something like this could have been useful prior to 
you know, the blizzard actually hitting Buffalo and taking 44 lives. Um, but I'm happy that it is happening. I just, I do think it should have happened prior to. And then as far as uh, Scanlon's, uh, Councilman Scanlon's resolution, yeah, I think that that's the same thing. Like these types of um, initiatives are just, they're great, but they're just almost a little too late. Like why right. didn't we have like a, a, a snow and blizzard plan years ago? These are basic things that should have already been in place. Yeah, and I kind of think it's the least the city could do at this point. It's kind of the bare minimum is looking into what happened as I totally agree with Jolanda that this all should have happened ahead of time. And I think both of us share the concern though, that any investigation about, you know, how the blizzard management or the lack of management of the blizzard played out and the subsequent fallout, making sure that whatever research and analysis goes into that, that it is seen in this broader context of systemic problems with the city, that it's not just treated as an isolated incident and an isolated failure uh, that can be remedied going forward. I, th I think the you know key thing that we want to make sure the city considers and that you know the public engages in a dialogue about is the extent to which this is just part and parcel of business as usual in Buffalo. And hopefully whatever analysis comes from these studies, um, and then, you know, whatever comes from Scanlon's resolution will be used uh, in that context to help the city consider how to completely restructure itself. And as Jolanda has said several times, to reimagine safety in the city's approach to um, actually protecting the public and not uh, tar disproportionately targeting um, the east side for uh, traffic enforcement and criminal enforcement. And I guess the uh, other question is too is, and NYU is a you know a great um, institution, but there are like local you know um, organizations and institutions here in Buffalo that could also work with the mayor, right? It's a perfect time to work with the local organizations to conduct that study, even though it is pretty you know sh you know should have already had been implemented. Like, why not work with some local organizations? So that would be my other criticism. Um, we've got uh, a few minutes left, and I wanted to ask uh, Jolanda uh, a pretty simple question. It's what a question I ask all of my guests. Um, from where you're sitting, what does Buffalo need? Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's a pretty... Yeah, that's a, I know it's broad. <laughs> a pretty broad question. I would say that Buffalo needs overall just systemic change that addresses the root issues um of a lot of the you know problems that we're we're seeing um in our in our neighborhoods in our communities um these really reactive policies and responses to um tragedies and crises in crises that <laughs> we have seen um, in 2022 and will continue to see just can't continue to happen. We need a city government that, you know, understands um, and, you know, acknowledges that um, we have to just reimagine 
how we approach, um, yes, approach safety, but how we approach housing, the housing crisis in Buffalo, how we approach uh, food insecurity, um, a food apartheid, like all of these various um, areas that really impact the quality of life for black and brown people, but just, you know, Buffalonians overall. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. Thomas O'Neill White speaking with Fair Fines and Fees members Jolanda Hill and Karina Teft about local government response to the blizzard and reimagining safety in a different perspective. Jolanda and Karina, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks very much, Thomas. We appreciate you. Thank you, Thomas. And we close today's show with a sneak peek at this Friday's Producers Picks program where we have highlights of important interviews you might have missed. Coming up this week, preservationist Tim Thielman on the rise and fall of the Jefferson Avenue Business District. If we go back, uh, this didn't happen overnight. We, uh, something like the Kensington Expressway or an urban renewal pro- program, they're not concocted and implemented within a span of one or two years. These are decades. So it, it had to do with thinking about cities and what are we going to do with cars going back to the 1920s. A amazing thing that uh, we often use in our uh, historic preservation research are a set of aerial photographs from 1927. The earliest aerial photographs of Erie County, they show Jefferson Avenue, they show Genesee Street, they show the east side densely built up with innumerable mom-and-pop businesses that are feeding off this pedestrian stream that's walking up and down Genesee, walking up and down Jefferson or Broadway, getting off streetcars, getting off buses at corners, Jefferson and Utica, and that's where you get this locus of businesses. So a mom-and-pop could start a business in a relatively cheap container, a space, housing up above, retail down below, and a predictable stream of people going about their business, doing the daily round. And it was great for all walks of life. That's Tim Thielman from the Campaign for Greater Buffalo History, Architecture and Culture. More with him coming up at the end of the week. A quick reminder, Buffalo What's Next is a podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or just listen on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.